Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, the largest and oldest nonprofit independent publishing company in Los Angeles. Red Hen Press publishes poetry, creative nonfiction, memoirs, and fiction including Unseen City by Amy Shearn, the latest Nervous Breakdown book club selection. Red Hen Press has also published best-selling work by Steve Almond, also a guest on this program in the past. Check out episode 513 for his discussion on bad stories, an in-depth look at how America came to elect Donald Trump. They've also published work by Fear of Flying author Erica Jong and Erasure author Percival Everett. Red Hen Press focuses on diversity in publishing, offering 10 annual publication awards, and they accept unagented submissions of manuscripts. For more information, visit redhen.org. And best of all, get 40% off your order for a limited time using the offer code OTHERPPL over at HTTP slash slash shop dot aer dot io slash red underscore hen underscore press I, uh, hello how's it going i'm brad listy welcome to the other people show my name's uh brad listy <laughs> i'm in los angeles i'm in los angeles um, keep repeating myself. I keep repeating myself. I, you know, it's been 110 degrees there. The state has been on fire. The air is smoky. The sky is kind of orange. The light is weird. COVID-19 is happening. The election is making people crazy. Everything's just crazy. You know, there's just a lot happening. There's a lot of layers. And, uh, in the midst of it all, the podcast continues. You can't stop this show. Wildfires won't stop it. Smog won't stop it. Heat won't stop it. I'm in the garage. Is there any ventilation? Is there any air conditioning? No, there's not. <laughs> My guest today is Matthew Salisis. He's got a new novel out on Little A Publishing or on Little A Press. It's called Disappear Doppelganger Disappear. It has been earning rave reviews. This is Matthew Salis's, uh second appearance on The Other People Show. He first appeared on February 3rd, 2013, I believe that was episode 145. He is the best-selling author of The Hundred-Year Flood, and he has two books forthcoming in 2021, a craft book called Craft in the Real World and a collection of essays entitled Own Story. His other previous books include I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying, 
different racisms on stereotypes of the individual and Asian American masculinity in a book called The Last Repatriate. In 2015, BuzzFeed named Matthew Salis as one of tw- uh, 32 essential Asian American writers. His essays have been published all over the place, and he is currently an assistant professor of English at Coe College in Iowa, where he teaches fiction writing and Asian American literature. Really glad to have Matt back on this program. We had a wonderful conversation. Many of you listening might be familiar with some of the fundraising that I was doing on this show a while back for Matt and his family. Um, Matt's wife, Kathleen, was battling stomach cancer, and uh, sadly she passed away, but we were trying to raise money to help them with her treatment, and uh, many of you participated in that. I want to thank you all again. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, that Matt has been through quite a lot. And in the midst of it all, he has been working and publishing and raising his kids. I mean, there's just something heroic in it. And I was just very grateful to him to uh, have the opportunity to connect and catch up and, and hear how he's doing, um, you know, despite all of it. And uh, I think, too, when we talked, there was, you know, there had just been this big weather event in Iowa what was it called? Like the land hurricane? <laughs> just like said, there's so much crazy shit going on. I mean, the last thing this guy needs is a land hurricane. But, you know, there he was. And uh, we talked over the transom. So one quick bit of news, and then we'll get started with the conversation. Uh, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I am blogging between now and Inauguration Day 2021. So for the next, you know, what is it, three, four months, I'm going to be uh, blogging. I'm going to try to do it on a daily basis. I'm going to try to be maximal in my approach. It essentially amounts to, uh, what, live blogging or live journaling, recording in real time my thoughts and uh, feelings on what's happening. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be only a political thing. It's going to be diaristic. I don't know what it's going to be, but I just feel like, after finishing my novel, I need a new project. I can't imagine thinking or focusing on anything other than the election and the moment that we're in until after it's over with somehow. So I just figure I'll do this, and by doing it publicly and putting myself on the hook, you know, this way, it'll give me, uh, you know, the incentive to do it. Or the, you know what I'm saying? You need that internal pressure. So if you want to read, <laughs> I'm really selling this. Am I not? If you want to read my daily thoughts between now and Inauguration Day, you can do that at bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. All right? Uh, Okay, so Matthew Salisis is the guest today. His new novel is called Disappear Doppelganger Disappear. It's available now from Little A Publishing, and uh, just great to have him back on the program. Here he is, folks. This is Matthew Salisis. It's like hurricane level winds, um, but it tears through as fast and like as a tornado or something. It felt like, you know, we got the tornado warning um, and the sky looked like tornado weather. And I was like, oh, shit, we're going to have a tornado. You know, Um, the kids were eating their dinner maybe at the time or lunch. um, And they were like, should we go down to the basement? And I'm like, no, you know, like if we see something near us, we'll go down to the basement and then suddenly it was just like extreme winds. Things were slamming against our house or like uh, the place that I have for them, like blew into the into the um, 
gulch behind our house and we ended up having to go down to the basement and just like eating in the dark as the power went out it was it was intense wow okay and your kids i mean like that's i, I remember that from my childhood in the midwest how scary tornado warnings and going down to the basement could be like that's that's just a feature of midwestern existence yeah i never really you know i grew up in uh connecticut so we didn't have tornadoes i mean we had hurricanes but we were pretty far inland so they only kind of caused minor destruction um but cedar rapids suffered like four billion dollars worth of damage um and got i think like four million dollars uh of assistance from the government just recently ish uh so it's it's definitely going to take take some doing to get the city back on its feet and um I'm supposed to teach classes on Wednesday, and I am barely online. I don't know what's going on. Oh, my God. So what happened in terms of the like the level of physical destruction in your neighborhood or at close range to your neighborhood? Like, what, what are we looking at when we go outside? Are we, like, houses destroyed? Some, most of the ones around my street, because we don't have that many trees around. Uh, I live in this, like, suburban construct right um even though i'm technically within the city um there's just like there was a line of really beautiful old trees in this uh gulch that is there for runoff i think um right behind my house that used to separate us from the neighbors in back of us who are probably i don't know 300 feet back there uh and now there are like three trees and the other ones kind of either crashed into yards or sometimes like into fences and, and part of uh, porches. Luckily, there wasn't much damage over here, but I, I had a lot of friends who had pretty significant damage. Um, cars, houses. My friend Liz, Liz Lenz has has been like the city's savior as far as I can tell, and, like really instrumental in getting news coverage and stuff. Um, she had a, a part of a tree fall through her house. Um, I know she's doesn't have power either so it's it's been it's been not great <laughs> yeah yeah especially with the pandemic right right it's just like layer upon layer of uh, calamity and just like logistical difficulty like it shouldn't be this hard to exist right <laughs> no otherwise we would just go to the grocery store at least and like get some i don't know non-perishable food but it, you're like afraid to go to the grocery store too um especially with your kids because I'm in Iowa and people are not like wearing masks or really kind of following any of the protocols. Um, and I don't know. It's just, it's scary out there. Yeah. I want to, I mean, I want to ask you about that. I like, this is, uh, there's going to be an inevitable uh, like element of, uh, politics, I think to the conversation, it would happen anyway, but it also figures into your book. And I want to talk to you about that decision. Like it fascinates me. Um, that you went there, you know, not that it's unexpected or, um, entirely unexpected or even inadvisable, but just because I have struggled with that recently in my own writing, like how much to engage with it? How much can I tolerate to engage, uh, with like contemporary politics on the page? You know, it's like sort of this monolith. You can't avoid it in some ways, but it also feels so exhausting to go there, you know, because the, <laughs> the lived experience of it is like so fucked that it, you know, you wonder how much, uh, 
I don't know. I wonder how much I can I can put myself through, you know. But uh, I want to talk to you first about, you know, the reality on the ground in Iowa. You take this derecho and you kind of overlay all that we were dealing with anyway with uh, all the destruction of the storm. Uh, but then you take like the political climate of Iowa. And I was speaking with a friend of mine recently. Uh, he was at Lake Okoboji, which I think is near you. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I think it's up near Cedar Rapids. I could be wrong, but it's a lake in Iowa. He was like out there with his, uh, with his wife, uh, or partner or something. And, um, you know, they had a, like a lake vacation and he was showing me pictures and it was just like, people were just out without masks, just partying on the shores of this lake. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody Uh, has masks. Nobody cares. And I guess a question to pose to you in light of what you've said so far is, like, do you think that with the derecho and with the lack of federal response and uh, with COVID, like, is anything moving the needle? Do you feel like there is any kind of um, malleability to the politics in Iowa or a place like Iowa? I mean, I'm lucky to be in a city, right? So, um, you know, the the three cities you can probably think of in Iowa, right? Cedar Rapids, uh, Des Moines, Iowa City, um, Quad Cities. The cities are all blue or whatever, Democrat. Um, But it's clearly not reflective of the state as a whole. Uh, You've got that kind of same urban-rural split as everywhere else in the country. Um, What what does seem kind of strange to me is that I think it's a different thing. I mean, it's politics for sure, but it's also like a kind of Iowan, maybe, I don't know if it applies to the rest of the Midwest, but definitely a kind of Iowan uh, isolationist thinking where I think people think they're just immune here from like the problems of the rest of the country, um, where like even liberals in Cedar Rapids who like realize the country is going to shed or, you know, has long been going to shed, um, Sorry, can I say shit? Yeah. <laughs> I know I can, but I, yes, I just please. want to check. Um, the have this idea that like, okay, it's out there, right? It's like it's out there and it's happening to other people, and I should be aware of this. And like, I'm against all this stuff that's happening, but I'm like immune here in Iowa, um, and that's why people aren't wearing masks and still having like Memorial Day parties and just it's you know, and still walking up to your door and ringing your doorbell and trying to talk to you like two feet away. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, let's, let's, this is like, it's nice to be friendly, but um, maybe not at the cost of dying. Uh, so it's, it's this, it's the combination of these two different kinds of politics. I think um, one that's just kind of the broader national conversation and one that's this very specific sense of um, immunity from from the national conversation. Yeah, my sister lives in Indiana. It's kind of the same thing. I think, I yeah. think you know, you have more space in a place like Iowa or Indiana. You know, I live in L.A. Everyone's on top of one another, um, you know, it seems. And there's just so many people here that it feels a lot more immediate. But uh, it doesn't mean that it's not going to impact these communities. I keep waiting in some kind of like dreadful way for the other shoe to drop. I hope it doesn't, but it can be hard to see how it wouldn't if people are going to be this lax about basic safety protocols. Oh, it is affecting us for sure. I mean, for um, last 
a little while ago, I was checking the statistics and Iowa had the fastest growing rates or maybe like behind Florida or Texas or something in the country. Um, you know, my parents live in Florida and I worry, my, you know, my kids and I worry about them all the time because even though they're wearing masks, you know, they're, they're of a kind of vulnerable age to coronavirus. Nobody else is wearing masks. Even though, right, like, they live in this retirement community and everybody's, like, super vulnerable to coronavirus and Florida is really terrible right now. Like, the, the cases are rising um, and nobody's following the rules anyway. It's I don't know. It just is so different from, like, you know, we have family in Korea or my wife's family, um, my late wife's family is all in Korea and they just it's so different there right everybody was wearing masks everywhere um you know they just completely shut down the country basically for like a month and afterwards a few months later like there were basically no cases of coronavirus and they can just kind of live their normal life there's there just this like huge concert in seoul where like a ton of people were out on the streets it's it's really amazing to me to think like some of it must be this kind of like weird American individualism, I think, right? Like where we think we're not thinking of the whole and we're kind of acting in our own self-interest. Um, whereas like in Korea, they're so, they're so nationalistic. We are too, but like so nationalistic in a way that is like more of a, the nation is one rather than like the nation is the freedom of the individual that everybody is kind of aware that their own actions impact other people. Um, Sometimes that makes it like very competitive and stuff. And, but here it, it was really amazing to see just that people, you know, in their daily actions are really thinking about how they will affect others and how others will affect them. Mm. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, this kind of ties into the, your book, at least a little, you know, loosely. Uh, yeah, this, totally. This, this idea of self and other and identity and how we, 
um, conceive of such things. Uh, the argument that I've been having lately with uh, friends of mine, I think of one friend in particular who is like among my more conservative friends, and I like to, like we have this kind of like, like in a way it's kind of lovely, just this argumentative text thread that spans like two decades almost. <laughs> um, <laughs> well. I need it, you know, like I need to have that dialogue. It makes me feel sane in some way to not be bubbled, you know, and to at least be able to communicate with somebody who might see things differently. And the argument that I keep trying to make is that, you know, this federalist approach to COVID where it's like, well, let the states handle it. Let the, let the localities decide based on their needs Yeah, has been a disaster. Like, uh, you know, what I would say is that you need or we needed a unified, strong response from the very top. We needed a president. You know, we needed an actual president who could co <laughs> co coordinate with governors and say, "Hey, you know, we all got to lock arms on this. Like, this is how we do it." And this isn't just me, just like blustering. Like, look around the world. Just like you were saying, like, how many people have died in South Korea? We got. We reported our first case of COVID as nations, I believe, on the exact same day. Mm -hmm. And I want to say there are under a thousand COVID deaths in South Korea. It could be even, it could be significantly smaller than even that. But it, like the last time I checked the numbers, it was just this dramatic disparity. And uh, it just, it just hammers home the point that Trump is a, a you know, a colossal, he's a colossal failure in, in so many ways. And that all of this, um, death and uh, economic destruction has in many ways been needless. It's infuriating. Yeah, so much of it is like the world that we live in, right? And the, and the like the different worlds that we live in. Um, one being this like, you know, the world, the local world that we live in, in our kind of personal world, but then also this, like the world as affected by the government forces and institutional forces that like control um, how we live. And um, what amenities we have, which are often really amazing, and um, but also like the response to diseases or the response to like a, a kind of unified response across the nation is all just out of our hands. Um, so I want to ask you uh, like a fairly delicate question around race, considering especially that you live in Iowa, which is a predominantly white state, you know, in this time of covid um, and we have a president who is, um, you know, openly racist in so many ways, but has been so with respect to COVID uh, by calling it the Chinese virus and all this stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm just curious to know, like, have you had any experience of uh, like uh, repercussions from that sort of rhetoric? Have you felt it as an Asian man living in a place like Iowa during this time? I have not, but I know definitely it has been felt quite strongly. Um, my neighborhood is is fairly Asian, especially for like Iowa, it's super Asian, even though it's probably like, I don't know, 15 to 20%. Um, but one of the things about quarantining is just the, right, the ability to kind of, well, before this happened, before the, all the power outages happened, to be within your house and not have to interact with, with other people at all. Um, you know, I felt more of that actually before, you know, just on a personal level, I think on a national level, obviously it's different, but my daughter would come home from school every day, right. Complaining about different things. And 
I would have to kind of explain the larger things at work that right, kind of have contributed to small interactions that she has with teachers and friends. Um, and now I don't have to do that just because we're at home all the time and the only influences she has around her are like me, her brother, and, uh, you know, YouTube or whatever, right? Um, so I've actually been... I, I, I've kind of enjoyed... And it's terrible to say this because I, I can, like, of what's happening on a grand scale and to other people, um, but being at home with my kids has been really amazing in many ways uh just the the difference between when you're like that larger world that you have to live in right like you can't like not send your kids to school uh well i mean you could i guess you could homeschool them or something or like subject them to uh various interactions with your neighbors or um take them to the you know children's museum or something or go into public at all and and have to interact with people all the time um and now it's like socially acceptable to to just well somewhat socially acceptable to just stay in your home all the time, uh, and and my kids have just are so much more confident, right? Like it's it's really kind of sad. I mean, it is really sad to think that when they're home, they kind of blossom in all these amazing ways, um, and that going out into the world is really is really to say like this world is not for you in a way that they don't have to feel like when they're in their house. Um, so it has, it's been, you know, a mixed bag, I think, uh, following like the national conversation and then uh, what's happening just in like my three person household. Yeah. You know, I think that if there's any silver lining to COVID, it is that it has forced a lot of people, I think, into a space where they are entertaining some radical new ideas about a lot of different things like education parenthood, where to live, how to live, you know, I can't, I can't help but imagine that there's going to be some positives that come out of this because of the kind of crucible that we're in, not just with COVID, but with all of it, you know, and I think one of the things I've noticed as a parent is how my kids seem less tired. Uh, I think that the, you know, the, the day to day going to school and waking up and going to this appointment and going to that appointment and constantly being on the move sometimes in the, you know, in the rush of life, you can lose sight of how tiring that is for children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think of my son in particular, who, you know, has some disabilities and has to go to all these different therapy appointments. And, you know, one of the hard parts of COVID has been that he can't do that anymore. So we're worried that he's losing um, some opportunities to make gains, you know, while his body and mind are still young. He can't go to therapy, but he does it, you know, over the computer. But the flip side is that, you know, he was going to school, leaving school, driving across town, going to one appointment, driving across town, napping in the car, going to another appointment. And, you know, the guy's four years old, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a lot for a kid to have to do. And in, in the absence of that, I've noticed that there's maybe a, a little bit less uh, crankiness or fatigue. And there is something nice about having your, your kid, your kiddos around all the time. Yeah, you realize too, like how how little time. I mean, I realized this before, but you really it really sinks in how little time you get to spend with your kids in like a normal um, American lifestyle where they're like just at school all the time, and then you take them to other classes or after school activities, and 
um, and you're working and, you know, you have dinner and then basically they have to go to bed, right? And um, you you barely get to interact with them as people. It's it's so functional, right? So much of it is so functional. Um, but now it's, it's both like sometimes kind of... <laughs> Uh, maddening, but also it's really amazing to see just what they can do when they are just given all the freedom of of time. Um, you know, my kids, I think, have grown a lot closer to each other too, just because they only have each other to play with. Uh, and I keep telling them, I kept telling them before, like, you guys are what, like, seventy five percent genetically the same, uh, and like, there's nobody else like you, like, nobody else so much like you in the world. Um, and so you should be the closest, right? This is your team. Like you guys are the team. Um, and I don't know if that really sank in until, until now, right? Until all of this happened. Yeah. I feel the same way. I mean, that's nice to see, you know, when your kids sort of, and I think too, our kids are at a good age. I think our kids are roughly the same age. Mine are 10 and five. Um, yeah. Nine or nine and three. Yeah. So, you know, I think this, this age in COVID it's not to say that it's easy, but I think it's easier than if they were like, you know, 15 and 13 or something. I think when you get into those years and your friends are kind of like maximally important to, mm. to suddenly be in quarantine is difficult. Teenagers, I think, are having a harder time. College students, you know, it's got to be imagine being like a sophomore in college and going through this, you know, like. Yeah, I can't imagine how they're even like, you know, my university and other universities are trying to enforce these rules on college students that are basically like, don't live in college, right? Like, this the whole experience is designed to like get them away from their family for the first time and give them all of this freedom. And then, you know, in order to keep them safe on campus, because they have to be on campus because the company, you know, companies, the universities slash companies need to make money from it. Um, it it's, it's just really hard for them, I'm sure, to not want to, I mean, I'm sure they're still doing it, right? Like they're still going to parties and still trying to do the things that uh, make them feel like they have a new kind of life, right? It's, I don't know. I, I, I doubt all of this, uh, all of the university stuff is going to work out that great. Um, but I'm a pessimist, so I have no idea. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there are certain activities that I, you know, I see online. I'll be reading a news story or, you know, scrolling through Twitter and you'll see some sort of video and, uh, you know, like a college party where you just have everybody standing around a keg without masks on. Or you'll see a, some sort of college party where everyone's standing around with masks on. In both cases, right. it seems sort of dreadful to me. Uh, yeah. and then, you know, they're still going to hook up, right. Go back to their, you know, dorms, uh, meet strangers. Uh, like there's still 18 to 22 year olds, most of them and full of hormones and like freedom. Uh, right. It's, it's just a disaster. It is. And then like, I got an email from some yoga studio in LA, you know, like I'm on some list, you know what I'm saying? So you get these like promotional you know, um, market, yeah, marketing emails, just, just I get, <laughs> gets, you know, God knows how many of those I get a day, but there's this yoga studio in LA, uh, and they're like advertising now rooftop yoga, like outside and, and, you know, <laughs> bless them. Cause they're trying to make it work. You know, they're trying to just keep their business alive, but 
they have photos of people on top of a parking garage in full sun exposure, um, just baking in like desert sun with a mask on doing yoga. And I'm like, I'm like, just forget it. Like, really? Like, is anybody going to do this? Like, this is so dystopian and nightmarish. I could not imagine like doing yoga, like in the heat like that without a mask on, but to have a mask on trying to breathe, it's just, you know, it seems ridiculous. Hot yoga yeah. times, times 10. <laughs> yeah, <right>. the, <laughs> I mean, I think what's really interesting when you say dystopian too, is like, we keep a mat with like, I feel like literary dystopias are imagining like, uh, you know, everything is broken down and a new way of life has sprung up, right? A new way of life that like also symbolically represents our way of life. But like the actual dystopia is everything's broken down and people are still clinging to the old way of life, right? And still trying to live it out as if like nothing has changed, um, even though we're living in dystopia. We're living in dystopia. For a while, I was just starting every sentence, like of every essay, <laughs> living in a dystopia. We are, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the massive shifts to our reality that have happened over the past, you know, four years, uh, there's still a, a lag time in terms of people, I think, f including me, like fully wrapping our heads around what the implications are and w also what has actually happened in its totality. There's so much to keep track of that even for somebody who's paying attention and who's reasonably rational and well-informed uh it can be hard to sort of uh parse it all and i think it's going to be a long process uh i also think that some of the changes that we've needed to make around you know like a range of issues i think of climate as maybe one of the more pressing ones uh, yeah. that are long overdue you know i think uh hopefully hopefully we're getting to a place where soon people are just going to come together or at least enough people are going to come together and reckon with it <laughs> yeah i guess you're still an optimist though brad <laughs> i mean uh, listen i i'm like i'm looking at this being like how long until we're snow piercing <laughs> <Right? Like, laughs> how long until i have to like fight my way up from the the back of the train uh eating the ground up cockroaches uh, <laughs> i mean you remember all those articles that came out uh, like a few years ago about how there are viruses living in the ice, right, or preserved in the ice and how is global warming happens? The uh, All these other older pandemics are going to come out of the ground and, and eat us. Um, I think about that constantly now and like how underprepared we are for a pandemic we knew was happening um, and that like didn't come out of the ground and, and wasn't like millions of years old. And what's going to happen to us if that actually comes true? I, it's horrifying. There's yeah, like there are any number of eventualities that are not that far fetched. You know that if you sit around for even like 20 minutes contemplating them, can just leave you in a state of either paralysis or just like mortal doom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you about the composition of your book. Um, I think I, I feel like I want to like commend you for being so uh, productive and getting so much good work done in the midst of all that you've been through over the past few years. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Disappear Doppelganger Disappear was written while your late wife was uh, sick with cancer. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Uh, well, so I started it. It's kind of followed my sad life story. <laughs> I I started after my daughter was born, which was an amazingly happy event, but also was like a lot of weird adoption trauma for me. Um, and I put it aside for a while, and then I did a lot of the major. Actually, kind of can I inter- can I interrupt? You? Can I? I don't mean yeah, to interrupt, but you just said there's a lot of weird adoption trauma. Can you just explain a little bit more what that means? Sure. Well, before my my first child was born, I had this idea just because of being adopted that kids were like blank slates. You know, that's how my parents had kind of always approached it as if like, you know, we raised you. My parents used to say like, you bite your nails because your dad bites your nails, um, which I totally believed until I until recently when I realized that like we do these things genetically. Um, you know, my daughter was born and she had a personality, right? She recognized our voices. She had desires, um, of her own. She, she had like, one of the things I think is really interesting about having a personality is part of a personality is like how far you'll go to get what you want. Like at what point do you kind of give up or like change your approach? My daughter, even from, you know, immediate birth and infancy, would never give up on on anything she wanted. Um, would just kind of push it until she either got it or she had like completely exhausted herself. Uh, she, we like for a while until she was three, she wouldn't sleep at night until like four in the morning, uh, just like pure will. Um, and so all of those things really shook up the way I thought of who I was, right? Like where I came from, where like my personality came from, um, and it was it was very hard to deal with just i mean it was a huge identity shift um and it was very difficult for me to think like that my screwed up way of thinking about who a person is and who i was would not also like screw up my kid in ways that i wouldn't in the ways that she wouldn't know either until like maybe she had kids or you know many years later um you know, I was thinking at the time, right, like, I'm going to therapy now, right? That was the, like maybe the first time I really did serious therapy. And I'm realizing all of the shit that, that screwed me up when I was a kid um, that I just kind of either tried to forget, ignore, or like told stories around. Um, and I just didn't realize how much it had affected me until I was, what, 29 on the therapist's couch or whatever. Can you, and can, I was thinking, can you tell me like, and I mean, not to go deeply into it, but just like as an example of something as a kid that might've affected you, but you didn't realize the extent to which it did. I mean, the stuff about, you know, my, my parents did their best, but they didn't even know. I mean, one of the things that really hit me when I had, when we had our first kid was like, my, my mom didn't know anything about how to raise a baby. You know, like well, I was adopted when I was two. My my siblings are both adopted, but you know, they they were adopted when they were like six or nine months. And she kept like suggesting things that you couldn't do with an infant. Um, you know, like immediately when it, when the baby was born, she was like, "Put them on a you know, put them on timers, lock lock them in the other room, and let them uh, you know sleep for six hours." I was like, "Like this is." 
this is just not a thing that you can do right now, right? Like the child has to feed every like two hours because it's like used to this kind of womb life. Um, and it, she didn't know like how to comfort a baby. And then my mother-in-law was there cause she'd come from Korea to help take care of the child. And there were, if, if we had problems, she would just pick up the child and like immediately calm it down in a way that was both amazing but also terrifying to me like just to, to know like all of the things that i didn't know and my parents didn't know that had gone into like raising me um you know and so i just i just didn't realize how much of an impact they had on my life until later things like which i found out later that i had um when i was a kid i like hated to mow the lawn hated to wear turtlenecks uh like really constricting socks um they they like I felt like I was dying really almost literally. And, um, my parents would have these huge blowout fights with me and I was just, I can't do this, right? Like I can't do this. Um, and I would end up running away. I ran away from home a lot as a kid. Um, also because I was like terrified of my father. And when my daughter was born, she had the same kind of sensitivities. Like she wouldn't, when she was like three years old, six years, I mean, three months old, six months old, uh, we took her like outside and um, she wouldn't like put her feet on the grass or like get in the dirt at all. She didn't like the texture. Right. Um, and so we started having to figure out what was going on with her. And we found that she had uh, sensory um, sensory. Uh, what's it called? Processing disorder. And, it, and as she was going through the therapies for this, right, like one years old or something, we had people coming over to the house to help her kind of deal with uh, sensory overload and stuff. I was going through the same uh, training with her, right, because you need a, a parent to kind of show them that it's okay and uh, to get into it. But I was having like a terrible, terrible problem with all of the things that she had to do. Like one time we had to put our hands in like jelly or something, jam, and and it was it was so horrifying to me. Uh, and I realized, oh, like this is this is what I've had all my life. And my parents just like didn't deal with it at all. Like didn't think of it at all as something that they could help me with or that, you know, could explain some of my behavior. Um, and now I'm realizing with my own child, because she's genetically right related to me, that the things that she has going on are things that I had going on. Uh, and so it was really kind of changing the way I thought of my childhood. And, um, you know, in the in the book, in the in the novel, The Spirit Double Gain or Disappear, the question at the beginning of the book is like, what is wrong with him? Um, which was a question I really wanted to explore from the beginning of writing the novel. I just think it's an interesting question when somebody else says to you, like, what, like, what is wrong with you? Um, like, what is it that you are doing that's that isn't like registering with the rest of the world? Um, and for me, it was like this big moment or like an unfolding series of moments in which I tried to understand. <laughs> My daughter is now burst into the room and said, just leave it. <laughs> just leave it. There's someone Sorry. at the door. Just don't answer. <laughs> um Man, I don't even know what I was talking about now. Oh, I was trying to—I was trying to figure out like what was wrong with me, and uh, what I thought was wrong with me was just totally different from what was what was like unfolding and telling me that maybe possibly that what was wrong with me was not so much like my own 
individual failings um, and instead like circumstantial uh, environmental things um, and genetic things that that if I had had like a biological parent who would recognize these things in themselves might have handled all this very differently. Um, and so I was going through a lot of that while I was thinking about like how because I didn't know anything about parenting and because I, I didn't know anything about how my biological parents would have parented me and my parents hadn't parented me until I was two and a half. And so they didn't really have any memory of, of what I was like as a child that could be applied to like what my daughter was like um, before she was two and a half. Uh, I had this like incredible fear of just of just kind of destroying her life uh, either just through a kind of repeated trauma or just because I didn't know that I was doing it. Um, and so I had a really hard time with that. And I started the book thinking, um, I'll just kind of try to deal with some of this stuff on the page. Uh, you know, there at the time, there was this thing that people, I guess, still say, like, you have to write about your worst fears. Um, and so I thought I'll do that, right? I'll just I'll make this guy who's you know, maybe like me in the future, uh, who's, who's like driven away his kid and his wife and his adoptive parents and is like all alone. Um, and then has also like done this to himself in a way, right? Like has like really done this to himself. And, um, the way I thought to think of, you know, the way I thought to kind of write about that was I, I started the book with the title, the murder of the doppelganger. And it was originally a kind of murder mystery in which uh, the narrator discovered that his doppelganger had been murdered and would find out, like, eventually, basically, that in some symbolic way, he had he had murdered the doppelganger himself. Right? Like, he'd killed himself off. Um, he was killing himself off. And that was kind of his life uh, and what was going wrong with his life. And that's where the, the kind of germ of the novel came through. And by the time... I was kind of doing the major revisions that you do, right? Like with your editor, um, because I pushed back the book, I don't know, three years maybe just cause all the shit that was happening in my life. My wife was dying of cancer and getting chemo treatments. And I was accompanying her on these, uh, train rides back and forth from Busan to Seoul, Korea. And, then spending, you know, three to three days to a week in the cancer hospital with her, surrounded by all of these other cancer patients, um, all women, all uh, suffering from stomach cancer like her. And in this like amazing building, all devoted to cancer in Gangnam, which is like the super a super rich district of soul you probably know from the uh gangnam style song and looking out the window you could see like lotai tower which is this like monument to capitalism um right one of the the largest brands in korea and a kind of global uh monopoly really like it's a in korea there are these kind of like monolith brands that like samsung that actually make like every single product you can possibly think of. And though, even though we only get like certain products, they're actually making everything. And so you can get like a Samsung TV, but you can also get like a Samsung like toothbrush and like a Samsung vacuum cleaner and, and like everything. Um, 
And so Lotte is one of these brands, and you can look out the window at this like huge tower that's built to this uh, monument of capitalism and this other way of life where people are like striving and striving to get thing more and more possessions and like live a certain way that we used to think was like a happy life until cancer hit and in the ward itself it was just a totally different life going on right the only thing that mattered was living and um everyone was so actively just trying not to die uh it was it was just a complete mind trip and i was working on the book at that time and the same kinds of questions present i mean the book was still asking a similar kind of what is wrong with matt kim um which is also like what is wrong with society right what is wrong with um the world that tells matt kim that he should be a certain way what is wrong with matt kim who tells himself that he should be a certain way in order to fit into the world and and just coming up with like coming up against a very different situation where um what mattered was was very different um and i spent a lot of time by my wife's side while she was sleeping uh in a lot of pain trying to like sleep off the pain from chemo working on the book uh thinking about these questions of like what is what are we living for and um you know why aren't some people trying so hard to live and why are we trying so hard to live a certain kind of life and um you know, just all of these very existential <laughs> questions and questions about, like, what happens when you die. Like, you know, if the body and the mind are the same thing, which I really believe they are, um, what the hell happens when your body dies, right? You know, like, just these things that were kind of shaking up all of these different thoughts about religion and um, existence and uh, love and um, living and dying and... I did a lot of the work on the novel then trying to figure out um, what it all meant to this this person who was who thought he was disappearing from his life. Right. That's a very long way of saying what I really want to say is thank you so much to the many people who um, helped raise money for my wife's chemo treatments. And, and Brad, you, you you were so instrumental in that. Um, and Roxanne for uh, matching those donations. I still have those t-shirts and I wear them all the time from the fundraiser you, you did. Uh, and my wife, you know, really wanted to express her, her gratitude as well. Um, and I probably just kind of screwed that up because I couldn't think about anything else at the time, but thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. And we should say Roxanne Gay, you know, she was a big part of that yeah, fundraiser. Roxanne very, gen Gay, very generous human being. Really amazing. Um, but so many people were kind of there for me during that time. Um, and, it, you know, we had no health insurance because because my wife had moved to America um, and we were on uh, Obamacare. But Obamacare turned out to be like not that great um, for us, at least. And or just like not to have that much coverage, especially for somebody who couldn't afford to like get the premium level of Obamacare. And we ended up having to pay for all of this cancer treatment out of pocket. Whereas if she had just stayed in Korea, one, they would have like just found the cancer much earlier. Stomach cancer is very common in Korea and they, they test for stomach cancer, right? Like when you go in for your 
physical, they'll test you the way we test for like breast cancer. Um, and there are certain points where people there will do like full body scans just to test for like all these different cancers. Um, and the way that we don't do it here because it costs too much money, right? Um, but there it's covered by the government. <laughs> so, uh, so she would have just caught it much earlier and then everything would have been covered by government insurance if she had lived there and by her insurance that she had had on top of that uh, in Korea, which she was paying, like I don't know, like $3 a month or something for, um, that we just didn't have anymore because, because we had come here. And so we really did rely totally on donations to uh, try to save her life. And, and she lived you know, a year at least longer than anybody expected her to live. Uh, which we were really grateful for, um, but in the end, it was just you know it was just too much. It had already metastasized by the time we caught it. Hmm. It's just infuriating to hear that you know that anybody going through that in the richest country in the history of the world should have to raise funds to pay for treatment like that is outrageous. It seems like everybody's doing right, like GoFundMe to to pay for hospitals and to pay for like damage from the storms or to pay for like we, we now rely on these like fundraising uh, websites to help us survive in a country that is so rich, right? Like could, it could help us to survive. I saw this horrifying graph the other day, which of course I knew like, but to see like a time-lapse of, how taxes have changed from 1950 when like the rich were paying like 90% taxes or something and the poor were paying like 5% taxes to how like the line basically leveled out and now actually is is like the uber rich are paying less uh percentage wise on taxes than the super poor it's just <laughs> it's just horrifying it's nothing you can do but laugh well and there's a layer of uh there's a layer of kind of sickening irony to what you just talked about in the sense that people who, you know, tend to be on the political right in modern political context who advocate for lower taxes on corporations and the rich, uh, sort of as a, as a rule often idealize the 1950s as the sort of halcyon era yes, of, yeah, of, sure. of conservative life in America. They always like that was when America was great. You know, that's the, the America they think they want to go back to. And they often have no idea that the top marginal tax rate in America during the 1950s was 90%. Yeah. And that people like Jeff Bezos were paying 90%. I don't even know what capital gains taxes were back then. Um, you know, I don't know what the rate was on, on passive income, but you know, like there's a big lesson in that. And uh, like there, there's like a, a lesson in basic math and uh, <laughs> like the humanity of, of sane tax policy. Uh, but there's also a lesson in human ignorance and a com just a complete blindness to history, the basic facts of history, you know, and the way these yes. things can get warped in people's minds um, is telling. So... Like, don't even get me started on that, but hopefully things will take a turn. I know we just had our pessimism, optimism conversation a bit ago, but like, I'm, <laughs> I'm clinging to the, to hope that like things will begin to write themselves in January. And, you know, hopefully we can get enough people on board to push things in a saner direction and to recalibrate 
our governmental and societal understanding of the balance between individual liberty and collective responsibility. And, you know, your novel speaks to this uh, in some way. And I think it's a conversation that we so desperately need to have. It doesn't surprise me that it's on your mind. And I'm not suggesting that it's just politics that's driving your, um, you know, fascination with it. I think there's a lot more to it than that. But I think that our country and maybe the world, but especially our country, uh, a place that seems to be so um, like just deeply identified with this idea of individual liberty needs to have a real conversation about the relationship between these two things, um, you know, and, and to, like I said, recalibrate um, our understanding of the relationship between the individual and the collective, because you can't have one without the other, right? Um, right. You, you can't have, you know, I don't think it's possible to have a, a healthy functioning society in which the collective is supreme to the exclusion of all, indi- you know, all concerns around individual liberty or vice versa. Um, there has to be an interrelationship between the two, but I just think we're out of balance. Yeah, I feel like we're living like under a very, a very powerful story of desire. Um, there's this essay I thought of all the time as Trump was running, and I was like convinced that he would easily win. Um, by uh, by uh, Joan Kopchak about Ronald Reagan, or yeah, about Ronald Reagan and the lies that he was telling the public. And there was this at the time there was this one news station that was devoted, like devoted an entire segment to just like tell it, like fact checking all of the things that Reagan was saying and showing how everything was was a lie. Um, and and it made no difference, right? Like people would watch this and it made no difference at all to like their support of Reagan. Um, and Kopchik makes this like amazing argument that what it, the reason why it doesn't work is because people like they're not they don't desire a story that tells them like all these individual facts what they desire actually is like is reagan right they desire they have this like desire attached to the idealism of being this like beautiful actor slash politician who's successful in life and um has this like amazing american lifestyle right and and the same thing seemed to be happening seems to be happening with trump it's like people don't care what the truth is because that's not like what the actual story for them is the story is like one day we could become like this right and if he lies and if he like you know is actually broke who cares he's he's like the fucking president of the united states right and if i can become like him it's this kind of weird desire for trump himself which like pushes away all of the various things that we think would like break through that story because those things like don't stop somebody's desire to be like a rich white person in the presidency without having actually done anything to deserve it. Um, You know, like that's like the ideal thing for a lot of people. Um, And the more that we kind of fight against that with things that actually make it seem like even more appealing in a weird way, um, it doesn't really seem to be, working that well uh, but we've been kind of under the same story i think for a long time you know I mean, we live under the thumb of this like really powerful story mm. and i think too you know 
what is it, two of the four last, two of the four um, Republican presidents of the past 40 years have been film or television stars. <laughs> uh, that's not an accident. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name. He wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death. Do you know this book? No. Um, but he's a, you know, if, I want to say he's from Columbia University or one some New York university, but he's a social critic, you know, and thinker who wrote in the 1980s, like a very, what turned out to be a very prophetic book about American culture and how when you have um, like an image-based, I'm, I'm probably going to fuck this up, like epistemology, is that the word? Mm -hmm. uh, versus a word-based epistemology, which is the way things were prior to television. You know, it has a way of dumbing things down and you turn like, you know, the news and American political discourse into entertainment and it has catastrophic effects, you know. And so you fit into that uh, dynamic, you know, Ronald Reagan, this sort of empty vessel, uh, conservative, former film star who like, you know, was doing movies with chimpanzees. And then like 25 years later, he's the president, you know, like. Uh, yeah. And then you have Donald Trump, who's like a bad reality TV star, but also, you know, I think if there's any gift Trump has that is um, clearly defined and irrefutable, it's his it's his gift for understanding the medium of television in its, you know, in its crudest dynamics. You know how to mm -hmm. how to arrest attention, how to control a media narrative, how to redirect people, how to relate to a camera, like that sort of stuff is very natural to him you know he's been doing it his whole life and you know i think that's part of the reason why you know he was able to move through the system but um you know along the same lines uh, i was i've been having this conversation somewhat frequently lately you know because we're in a political season but you know bill clinton and barack obama on the democratic yeah. side natural telegenic you know megawatt superstar kind of qualities you know they play well on tv and it's a necessity i think uh, it might not be something you like or even agree with but it's hard to refute this idea that you have to be good on tv in order to succeed in politics and so uh you know i've been thinking about the democratic ticket and i was telling him my friend i'm like look biden you know he wasn't my choice but at least he sort of like, you know, adheres to some idea of like the central casting idea of what an American presidential politician looks and sounds like. Like his voice mm -hmm. has a certain, you know, baritone or whatever quality to it. He's got the big like piano key smile, you know, <laughs> like um, kind of like a, you know, something like out of the past. And then when he picked Kamala, I was like, she looks great on TV. And everyone can say, well, that's really reductive. And, you know, I totally get that argument, but I also think it matters. And I hate to, yeah. I hate to say it in some ways, but she's got that like megawatt smile and just like all that kind of like telegenic charisma. And so part of me is like, okay, they have a fighting chance, you know, because I think in the absence of that, uh, in our culture anyway, it's difficult to be successful. Yeah, there's an interesting, there's a lot of interesting things in there. 
I mean, do you do you agree? Am I am I off the track? I mean, it sounds like you're thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking about I'm thinking about when when Trump was you know running for the nomination. What I was noticing was right, like all of the coverage was about either how he could never win or about um, you know the danger of him winning or like how how you know whatever everything was all the coverage was about trump right? like and even when um hillary was running against her it was it was all coverage like don't you know like we have to beat trump and and still kind of the same thing now and i and i worry about that um i think obama won because the he centered the conversation on himself it was like can this person become president can we have the first african-american president or how he can't become president right like everything was about him um both positive and negative and when trump was running everything about was about him was positive positive and negative and, and so a lot of it is just like tension and like brand branding right like the more you see the more you see something the more it's just there right like the more awareness of you that you have and the more it kind of filters into the story of, of America. Um, and so I do worry I mean, I, in that aspect. I actually think like I was going to think I, what I was thinking of originally was, you know, going back to the pessimist argument and, and, and saying like a pessimist might, might say uh, when the pandemic broke out trump thought well this is a pretty good opportunity right to keep like certain people at home who would be most you know most likely to stay at home during this and maybe like least likely to vote for me um and then you know like suddenly we've got the post office isn't being defined and then like there, there's just like if you kind of think about it from a evil evil genius level all of these things like really make sense in like a weird um, way that probably, you know, you could not, you probably couldn't explain Trump as an evil genius, but it's just like, so it's depressing. It's so depressing. <laughs> Do you have any sense of how things are going to go? I'm going to get off politics, but it's all, it's so in the air right now. It's kind of unavoidable. Like, do you have, uh, a... I don't, I don't think Biden is going to win. I like, I just don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think if we had, you know, like a voting system that made sense that he would easily win. Right, like there's just no question that that the facts say the majority of Americans are anti-Trump and pro-Democrat. Right, um, the problem is like that's just not how our system works, you know. Um, I just I'm, I'm floored all the time by like countries that have set up like online voting, you know, like the day is taken off. It's like a holiday voting holiday and then people can just like vote from their phones and it's totally secure and it's just like and it, all the votes are counted automatically it's just amazing that we can't that we could easily do this actually but we just refuse to do it um it's actually like totally completely 100 percent makes sense that we don't do it um but only if you kind of think in the evil genius kind of way right like <laughs> everything makes sense if you just think of the worst case scenario Right. Well, I mean, it's like if you can't win on the merits, you know, if the policies that you advocate for simply aren't popular enough to carry the day, then I guess your alternative is to try to suppress the vote and cheat. And that's how you can keep power or get power. 
um, like that's the only rationale you could possibly have for not wanting a fair fight, right? Like why why would you? I don't know. It's very mad. I don't think like I think a lot of people. I don't think Trump was in the presidency for a fair fight. You know, like that's what you know, I don't think that was like any part of the premise for for certain people running for for for, for government offices. Um, there are definitely some people who like would want a fair fight, but I think actually I, I maybe I am too cynical, but I think a lot of people running for those offices are are in no way in it for the fair fight, right? Like they're just they're in it to like the purpose is to exploit the system. Um, that's why they're running for an office, a position of in government is to exploit the system. Um, so of course they're going to try to exploit it in, in you know, gaining votes. Hmm. So the mood in Iowa, you think Iowa is pretty Trumpy? Yeah, I guess you're probably seeing lots of that. Do you see like you see like MAGA hats and stuff like that around? I do not because I live in the city, thankfully. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, um, but. You know, I think Iowa will probably, yes, go for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just another thing. Like, I think people are against the policies. Even like people, who, a lot of people who will vote for him are still against the policies. But again, they're like, they, you know, all politics is local politics, right? Like there's no way in which those policies for a lot of those voters are actually affecting them on a personal individual level. And that's how they're voting. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about um the con- you know the conception of your book just in terms of like nuts and bolts because you know there's a lot going on um it's a bit of like a high concept idea if we can use that phrase and, sure. and uh i guess i'm i'm wondering like how you did it like was this something that you outlined was this something that you intuited did you just come up with like a basic conceit and then just sort of start feeling your way through the story from there. Like, how do you work to flesh this thing out and make it real on the page and, and make it uh, make sense? Oh, Brad, I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> I, I wrote the first draft using the George Costanza method, um, which is like, do whatever you, you think you, you know, the opposite of whatever you think you would normally do. Um, at the time, my the hundred year flood wasn't selling uh, to editors, and uh, you know the baby had been born, and I was just depressed. And I thought, I'll just, I'll just, you know, like I'm clearly doing it wrong, and so maybe I'll just do the opposite, right? Like the opposite of what I would think to do. Um, and so I did that for a whole draft. I wrote like you know a thousand words a day or something every day for for months and months and. Um, at the end of it, I had a draft in which uh, things appeared and disappeared randomly and out of the blue, um, which was apparently how my imagination works. I, I don't know. I, I must have thought like the least expected thing for me was just that something would go away and then come back again. Um, and so what I had after that was just like a this messy thing that had a kind of like propulsion to it but the propulsion was based on like this very manufactured uh george Costanza method and so i had to kind of do a lot of work to just try to figure out like why what is wrong with me <laughs> like why would i do that why why would why would that be the thing i would think of um 
disappearance and reappearance uh, and and through kind of trying to figure out like what in my consciousness would be kind of uh, would be attracted to this idea um, I was trying to figure out too like what the book was about and um, what I was even trying to do with fiction at all um, so it, it took me it took me seven years to write the book and I'd say like a maybe a three-year chunk of that at least was just me like struggling really really painfully um, and writing like the same things over and over again in different ways um, and just every time it didn't seem right and just trying to figure out like what what the thing was um, what it was at all and like what I was doing at all uh, and so a you know, much of the process for me was not on paper. I mean, not planned in any way. It was more just um, interrogating myself. And once I was able to like give up on the idea of what I was wanted to do and and to rethink that through. I mean, I think. See, I'll, I'll tell you. Like, um, I sold the book uh, when the hundred year flood was doing really well. And uh, in that like in that month period where a book does uh, seem to have some success, um, I was like, oh, this is the time, right? So I sold the book on spec then, and I thought it would be really amazing to be able to write a book um, after it was already sold. I thought like this will be this will be so much more relaxing. Like it will take all the stress out of like will will this book be sold out of the equation and it would it totally backfired it it completely backfired for years um where it was just like so paralyzing to me just to try to figure out then like what the hell why am i doing this book at all right like um what i was doing with under your flood was clearly now i realized after the next book it sold was trying to sell the book um I'd been writing a book to try to sell a book. And when that was off the table, I had to have like a real purpose for writing the book. And I didn't have one, you know, I like, I just didn't have one. Um, and it took me a really long time just to figure that out. And I wrote, uh, I think a lot of the craft essays and stuff that I have written have just kind of came out of me trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I like, wasn't doing it for these like weird commercial reasons and like was doing it, in terms of like what I wanted to uh, get across through the form of an imaginary thing to a, a real person on the other side. Um, and I, I just spent a long time trying to figure that out and uh, maybe never did, but hopefully, hopefully it makes some sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, that speaks to me. Um, maybe not in a one for one way, but I just finished the process of writing a very personal book. It's a novel, but it's like, you know, really sort of emptied myself out is the kind of after effect. Uh, I'm, I imagine you can relate to that where you feel like you just sort of poured all of yourself into a project and then yeah. the question comes. Do you feel like you'll never write again now? Yeah. <laughs> that usually leaves me feeling like, I guess I'm yeah. done. Yeah. Well, and I think <laughs> I've been having conversations here and there with like writer pals of mine lately. Um, and I'll have it here with you just cause you've written about craft so much and you teach and you obviously think a lot about these things explicitly, but I, where I struggle is that, you know, something you said earlier about writing about what you're, what is it most afraid of? Like your worst fears. 
Um, Writing about the thing you're trying to avoid, writing about the thing that's most difficult for you or the thing you would maybe want to hide or something tends to be a good strategy (laughs) Um, because there's real blood on the page and there's emotion in it and that's good for the reader. You know, it might not be great for you in the writing process, but I think it yields something on the page that can move people, which is why, you know, it's a lot of the reason why we go to books. And so one of the challenges I think on future projects for me is like, do I sit around waiting for more bad shit to happen <laughs> so that I'll have material, you know, well, make yeah, it or maybe I can make it happen. Uh, or, you know, do I move off in a more imaginative direction, like purely imaginative direction? And if so, how do I get myself to care? Like to feel the same sense of like personal heart level investment in the project. Like, do you see what I'm getting at? I yes, that's the first thing I teach in when I teach creative writing. It, um, we spend the first week always on vulnerability um, in the lower workshops, uh, just in like an introductory fiction workshop. I agree completely. I mean, I think I I used to be, you know. My students used to ask this question. I don't know why they don't ask it anymore. Maybe they just don't trust me. <laughs> but they used to ask me, like, how can I, like, what's the fastest way to be a better writer? Um, I was like, I fucking know. Like, you know, like, <laughs> write for 10,000 hours. Um, no, but then I started to think, like, maybe it's just, maybe it's something you do on yourself, right? Like, it's it's about vulnerability and being able to, like, to to access those places and to kind of, be okay with writing about those things and even to be like to to want to explore those things um which may not be like necessarily a natural state of living in this kind of world um which sometimes i think is more about like avoiding those things right um and so we spend the first week talking about what it means to kind of invest yourself on the page even if that doesn't mean like writing about your worst fear or like you know what i tell them is like if you if you've murdered somebody i don't want to know about that like that's not what i'm talking about um you know maybe 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 just go with something like that kind of and i love this this phrase from uh gordon lish um who i don't like but anyway i mean amy hempel's first story was based on this prompt from gordon lish that's that was uh right about what disassembles your sense of self. Um, and I do like that kind of idea. Like the thing that makes you feel like you're on unsteady ground um, as a self, that may mean that like when you're trying to figure that out, you are investing the self in that. Um, and I don't, I'm not a big like, I've become kind of not so enthusiastic about like the the trauma writing the um not trauma writing in general but like writing out of your trauma or like always trying to kind of like rush after your trauma uh like re-traumatize yourself on the page um i do think there's a way in which um a lot of fiction comes out of the kind of uh question of of like what you're trying to do and who you are and how that translates um, in those vulnerable moments onto the page. So this, I mean, this is all a way of saying, I guess, like, I think you do have to have some kind of investment 
in whatever you're doing. Like the problem with me and I was thinking, I thought for a long time, you know, you know, there's a, like, there's a, they had to separate the New York times bestseller list into romance fiction and, and fiction because it was all romance fiction, right? Like every, every month it was all romance fiction. Every week it was all romance fiction. Um, and that's why we have a separate list. I was like, I'll just write, you know, I'll, I'll like read for a year, a bunch of, romance novels and then just like write write one um but the problem is like i'm not i just didn't i can't be invested in that in the same way um you know even with this book my my desire to write a uh best-selling mystery novel turned into like a super niche literary book about asian american disappearance <laughs> right like that that's just like if I if I get invested in something, my investments are so so like <laughs> I I've invested in very few things. I think um, I only actually can talk and care about like four things. It's like my kids, uh, like um, books, uh, you know, books and writing, and like Asian American issues. Um, you know, possibly politics. So I think I usually fuck that conversation up anyway. <laughs> Um, and so it ends up always being about the things that I care about the most. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that actually is maybe the best way to write. It's like the opposite of the kill your darlings thing. It's right. Like kill all the stuff that's not your darlings. Like, why do you even, why, why even write about that shit? Like (laughs) embrace your darling and do something with it. Yeah. I relate totally to what you're saying. I've had like, somewhat self-critical conversations like first of all i've had the same thought about a romance novel i'm like maybe i should just have a pseudonym and just it's about a weatherman who falls in love with the anchor woman or whatever the fuck you know and um and then you know the thought of actually sitting down to do that it's just i can't do it and i think the self-critical part of me is like or maybe not self-critical but like fatalistic is like maybe i am just weird and my sensibility <laughs> my sensibility is just not for popular consumption you know i i don't think it's without value but i just think that it appeals to a very small subset or would appeal to a very small subset of the population which again in and of itself isn't that bad but when it comes to making a living or making a go of it as a writer who supports himself with writing you know if the odds get longer in that sense, uh, you know, versus being somebody who can write like really, you know, who could just churn out great horror fiction or sci-fi. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The last time I was on this show, it was like, I guess that was 2015. I was writing a bunch of essays uh, for promoting the book and they were, um, they were all kind of directed at like a mainstream audience by which it's obviously like a kind of white middle-class suburban um, reads a lot of books audience, uh, you know, like liberal minded um, thing. And, and what I realized kind of writing all of them at the time I was really, I really thought they could actually do something to help, you know, like help change things. Um, I was, I had this, you know, I was on like the race beat, right? Like some terrible thing would happen in the news. Um, you know, police would murder another black man and I would write something about it. And um, a lot of other people would write something about it. And and people would share those things. And, and 
you know, in some ways it was like those pieces were super popular, but then like two days later, another terrible thing would happen. The same, almost the same terrible thing would happen. And we'd write about that. And then like a week later, the same thing, you know, like it would just keep going and nothing ever changed. And I started to really kind of um, ask myself why I was doing this then. Like if it wasn't going to make a difference, like if this is really what I want to do, like just, and I, I kind of, saw that what I was doing when I was like kind of ex- trying to explain my experience to my um, white adopted parents and, and just like people like them, right? trying to make that like a real uh, felt experience for them. And I just real like, I just had to give up on that. I mean, I think it wasn't the thing I really wanted to do. And, and a lot of the investment comes down to audience, right? Like, I'm not that invested actually in writing to the romance audience. It's not even like me. I'm I'm invested in romance, you know, like I actually love like romantic comedies and stuff, but that's not what I want to do with myself and like my creative energies and like that's not who I want to talk to. Um and so I had to it took me a long time just to try to kind of shift who I was writing for um to a much more specific, but also like much smaller audience of like Asian American adoptees around my age and like super liberal and um, who also like read a lot of literary fiction, which is, I don't know, sometimes I think it's probably like 500 to a thousand people. Um, But that actually mattered to me a lot more to like, even if I could reach 500 to a thousand people and to like do something for their lives, um, that was what I wanted to do. And that's where my investment was. And so I do think a lot of it comes down to audience and, and this like idea um, in workshops that like the investment should be in an investment in, in like a broad audience, as broad an audience as possible. Right. Which means like as wide an audience as possible, right. As, as like straight as audience as possible, like as able an audience as possible. And, and those things um, can be like really, great you know and really great for your career um but it's not something that i can really kind of invest in anymore i just don't feel that like interested in it and i know that if like i tried to do it i would just have like a kind of disinterested (laughs) a disinterested like uh what is it called um Ah, I had a word in mind, but just like a kind of like fake offering. Right? Well, just, yeah, that, I don't think I could sustain the energy required to finish a book even. Like it takes so much energy for me. Like it's not something that comes easily to me to write a book. I don't know if it comes, you know, no. it doesn't, I think it's, there are degrees, you know, some people have maybe an easier time of it than others. But for me, it's like, I got to be all in. And I don't, if I just did it for purely mechanical commercial reasons a i think i would be pretty miserable and b i can't imagine that the outcome would be that good like maybe i'm wrong but (laughs) it seems like i would just write a shitty book you know like yeah you'd have to really do like the you have to like live in that world i think you'd have to like do the research of actually like reading and liking those books and reading them like primarily and thinking of them the same way we think of like the books the weird books that we read Mm -hmm. right you can't just kind of like like buy-in on a surface level um i also think ah oh, crap i was going to say something but now i have nothing to say anymore. well i want to uh 
I want to ask you before I let you go. I know you got to get back to your your kids are downstairs, like lighting the living room on fire or something. <laughs> no, they're very happy to like be on their iPads for a limited amount. God of time. knows what they're watching on on YouTube <laughs> right now. They're watching, uh, you know, how to like, uh, you know, who knows? But um, I want to ask like like a I guess a broad question about how you're doing. Um, we've gotten bits and pieces of it, and obviously you've been able to be productive. Uh, in the wake of so much personal difficulty, like the loss of your wife, uh, primarily, you know, you've been under a lot of stress and you've had to deal with stuff that, um, you know, you shouldn't have to deal with at your age. Um, and I think, you know, it's the stuff of life and there are a lot of people listening who know you and know your work and might've listened to our first conversation on this show and who were aware of, um, you know, the circumstances around your, your wife's health a few years ago who have been thinking of you, like I certainly have been. And so I guess it's a two-part question. Like, first of all, like you, you seem, you seem good, you know, all, all things considered. I know you, you probably have, uh, many moments, um, that are very difficult, but you've managed to be productive. You're raising your kids, um, can you talk about how you're doing and then how you've managed to keep going in the face of difficulty? Because I think people listening who might be writers uh, or aspiring writers might have difficult circumstances of their own that feel oppressive or suffocating or are causing them to feel blocked or something like that. And I think there's maybe a lesson in what you've been able to do despite all that you've had to deal with away from the keyboard. Yeah, sure. I mean, writers who are suffering. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's It's been really hard, actually. I mean, I the world goes on, and, like, you don't actually have a choice. You know, I, sometimes if I stop and think, cause I've been asked this question a lot, just, like, how are you doing it? Right? Like, how are you doing it as, like, a, you know, I'm, like, a single dad, um, you know, trying to teach and write and do all this stuff at the same time, and now without power and whatever um not to like make it a pity party but i actually don't know i i have no idea how i do anything it's just that like things have to actually be done right like the kids have to eat you know they like have to get love um you know i have deadlines like my students need to be taught um and so like the things that have to be done get done and i think in some ways i know actually i know for a fact like if my if I didn't have kids, I would have already ruined my life by now. Um, I would have done it like very immediately and really hard. Um, but the circumstances of like having to do things that are actually do really matter to you have helped me a lot that I have had to do these things, but they're also the things that I care about. I've kind of put myself in, in the position, luckily, where... Like I said, I only care about a few things, but those are the things that my life is already kind of on track with um, as a teacher of writing and writer and parent. Um, and so the things that I have to do are also the things that make me feel alive. And there are many, many moments where, I mean, just to like put it on the table, I mean, there are many moments when I wish I was dead or, you know, like was just 
feel like very unlive. I mean, there are, I actually ask myself all the time, like, like, am I alive? Like, am I alive right now? Is this like a, a life? <laughs> um, when my wife was dying, she would you she would ask that question like, this she would say, this isn't living, and I was like, well, but like this is like the the last like living that we can cling to here, but it didn't feel like living to her. Um, and it and it felt so. I mean, there were some things that she said at the end that were just like so profound, and like deeply painful, but also like so amazing and honest, and like just like cutting through all the bullshit of life um, that I think about all the time now. And, and you know, Matt, I don't, obviously you, you're welcome to say, I don't want to share, but I'm curious to know because, you know, you set it up like so beautifully, like she said these really profound things. Is there an example of something she said that you could share? Sure. I mean, the living thing, that was one of them. Um, for me, one of the most painful ones was I, you know, especially like right at the end, um, I was saying to her, like, I just trying to make some sense of it that we had had a good life or like that, that at least like the life that we'd had together was, was like happy and, and, um, moving and, and productive and, and, um, emotionally fulfilling. Um, but what she said was she hadn't had a good life. Um, and I, I actually think she 100% meant that. Uh, and I don't know, actually, whether it's just she she meant that because she hadn't had a full life um, or because she was just, like, much less happy than I thought she was. And I, I think either could have been the case. Like, the things that, was make, that were making me happy actually were not, like, the things that were making her happy or, or not like totally. Um, and I think about that all the time now, just like what we, when we think we're like, things are going well, it's not necessarily the perspective of another person. Um, even a person you're so close to and spend all of your time with and love deeply. Um, right. The other is mysterious and unknowable and, um, needs to be honored as mysterious and unknowable rather than like try like a perspective that need, that try is tried to be occupied uh like rather than us trying to occupy that perspective hmm. yeah um you know so those are a couple things she's you know she said a, a bunch of things that kind of made me readjust how i was thinking of the years leading up to that um and the meaning that i was taking from um, this period of, of her dying versus the meaning that she was taking from it. Like at one time she said, cause I got really depressed. I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> I get really depressed. Um, and she said, like, I'm trying so hard to live and you're out there saying that you want to die. Or like, and I was, it was just, like it was so obvious, but also like I don't know what the fuck I was doing with my life. I mean, I still don't know really. So like, 
you know, no success there. But <laughs> um, there were just these moments of like complete clarity for her that also helped me to see um, the world better and, and clearer, um, even if it was more painful to me. And those those moments are just like constantly active for me. Um, I wrote this essay about grief and time and and how grief sometimes feels like it's just like carrying another time with you constantly. Like I feel like as as if I'm I'm living in in the time um, in which we are both alive, and also like in the time in which only I am alive. Um, and it's a feeling actually that I've had my entire life, right? Just from being adopted to like feeling as if instead of instead of feeling as if it's like a one time has stopped and another time has started, it feels constantly to me as if those times are still all active and there, and they're just like a step away, right? Like if I could walk through my wall into the life in which I wasn't adopted, like it's just so close. I could, all I have to do is just step through this kind of, you know, wall of jello, um, <laughs> to use the uh, thing for my novel. Um, and so I, I feel as if I'm living in all these different times at once, and and sometimes they're more active and sometimes they're less active. Um, and so those moments are always with me. I mean, in the time with my wife. And I have these dreams all the time. She's not. She's not actually like cured. She's. We don't live like the life that we lived before cancer. We live like in a continuous state of cancer, of dying, right? But she's still alive. Like there's still the hope that she can beat it, or just the hope that it will just keep going on and on. Um, for a long time as she was doing chemo and we kind of were reckoning with the fact that it was too late to like go through kind of any surgery or, or like anything that could really cure her. Um, we, fe we felt we had the hope at least that it could just continue, you know, like continue until for her, she wanted to see the kids marry. I mean, um, just like that the chemo could kind of keep pushing it off or, or that, you know, if you wait long enough, if she survived long enough, like new new forms of chemo would come up and, sorry, and just like um, uh, extend, extend and what was like suffering, but was also life long enough for her to see certain things happen in the world. And, and I, I live in that kind of time now, even as I live in this other time where, you know, like she's a memory to me and like an actively disappearing memory for my daughter and uh, something that my son, who's three, doesn't even remember at all. And those seem simultaneous to me. Like they don't seem, they don't seem so different. And... I think like am I okay you know like have I am I am I living in this world 
Um, it's hard to say. I, I mean, because the because I don't know that okay would be like to uh, to be living only in this this timeline. Um, if I think like maybe the right way to grieve to like, get over something, I I don't. I don't think that I would feel as alive that way as I do living in the multiple timelines and still desiring, even if the desire is something that can't be fulfilled. Um, you know, I, sometimes right after she died, I felt like there's nothing to want anymore. You know, I actually like, I was on Amazon every day buying something on two day shipping just to try to like activate some kind of desire because um, when you don't feel desire you don't feel alive um, and now I just try to keep the desire for my life alive even though like the reality that I'm living in um, is one in which she cannot accept or um, give back that love um, but it seems much more alive to me than the alternative. Uh, also seems like much more a life of, of kind of making, um, an imaginative life, like a life that kind of bleeds into art and um, thought and, and like change and just trying to make something out of life. Can I ask you about spiritual stuff? Uh, I imagine yeah. going through what you've been through. I mean, for lack of a better word, it's going to activate some thinking and behavior around the big existential questions. And I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of navigating the grief, taking on the responsibilities of single parenthood, um, all, all that you've been through and have to deal with, like, do you find yourself uh, reorienting at all around spiritual attitudes or beliefs? Have you found any strength in anything along those lines at all? I, I We did a lot of reorienting around that while she was dying. My wife became very strongly religious during that time and, um, Christians, I, I Catholic, and she's um, basically non-denominational, but and um, she just became like a very firm believer in in God and and like an afterlife, right? And that was a way of her, that way for her to kind of keep hope alive and and to to like be able to kind of accommodate death in in the and the last of her living. Um, and I, I, you know, obviously I encouraged that. I didn't kind of like, I wasn't trying to poke any holes in that. I, I was just trying to kind of go where she needed to go. Um, well, at the same time, I was reading and a lot of books about, about consciousness and um, um, thinking about fate and free will and these things that are in the novel a lot um how whether how like my life at that time and still like all the time really feels like very 
not within the realm of agency. I think actually like I've come to a place where I just don't, I don't actually believe in free will at all. And, um, and that's fine. I think, I think actually it's for me, it's better. And, um, crap, I forgot what I was saying. I, um, oh, spirituality. Uh, so I was, I was dealing with this kind of thing where like, if I've come to this kind of like scientific fact that there's not like a separation between mind and body and that, uh, consciousness comes right like is a is a kind of uh, neural reaction to the things that the, the ways that the body lives in the world um i also had to deal with this like the fact that i was facing uh my wife dying and and what happens to her consciousness that if it's kind of like a not like a byproduct but like a a thing of the body um i could see at that time in this really horrifying and an amazing way that consciousness itself or like life or like some some kind of energy was leaving her um you could like see it in her um not only because she was like losing a lot of weight, but because she became like more, it was like, like the life was decreasing. You could almost see the life decreasing, right? Like she had the energy of life and then she had less of that energy. Um, even when she was just kind of talking or eating and like acting as normal as she could, there was a level of energy in her like aura. I don't know what to say, like her, looks her her like way of being in the world that was decreasing and at the end um you know it's not it's not anything kind of new or original but i there was this kind of the profound moment of of death where like it's just so the body is so different like it, it doesn't seem like that should change everything so completely but it it was a totally different thing like an alive body and a dead body that change is so complete um and i really felt like what the hell where did that where did that go you know um how could that be just like a byproduct or the product of product of this thing that's now like still and cold and um, just like feels and looks and everything is like completely different. Uh, just in like, you know, an instant, in an instant. Um, and trying to match that up to what I had read in and thought about consciousness was, it's really it's still a really, it's a mystery to me. I just don't, you know, I don't know what to think about it. Um, I don't go to church now. Um, I didn't really go to church that often before either, but um, but I don't think it's any kind of like loss of religion per se. It's more like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like, I'd rather like be with my kids at home. <laughs> um, but I have noticed like my daughter has become 
like more cynical about about religion um and i don't i don't know if she's modeling my reactions but my parents are super catholic uh my wife right my dad was going to become a priest when he married my mom and they're still extremely catholic and, and they talk about god all the time right like it's um they'll relate everything to, to God and prayer. If something's going wrong, they'll say, like, we'll pray about it as if it, like, will be fine. And then my daughter will be like, uh, like, oh, pray about it. <laughs> like, um, in, in a way that that is just, like, it's both very realistic but also, like, heartbreaking on the level of, like, me relating that back to her mom dying and, and I, not under really... Not completely understanding how that has affected her her spirituality um but i think of course it's gonna alter how you feel about like um what's out there after death and even like what's out there in life um that can't be explained by life or death i think that's a big thing for me just thinking of I mean, I believe in ghosts, I guess. I believe in, like, these things that can't kind of be explained but seem, like, clearly part of some kind of, at least, like, a collective unconscious or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to believe, but um, all I can give is, like, a really unsatisfying answer. Well, but I think it, what you're saying, what I'm hearing is you're saying that you're open to the mystery. Um I feel somewhat similarly. It's hard to be defined on these things in a way, especially maybe for somebody of a writerly temperament. Like, I, I don't think it's possible for me to yeah. to come down in some really defined way about, uh, you know, h- how I feel about the afterlife, just as an example, because we're not dealing with anything evidentiary, you know? You're, you're dealing with maybe a little bit like you read the Tibetan book of the dead, you know, people who have died and then come back to life and like who were conscious enough in the process to report, you know, some sort of experiential uh, record, but you know, it's, uh, it's murky. And at the same time, you know, I think on a practical level, when you're dealing with deep grief or trying to shoulder the burdens of fatherhood um, as a widower, you know, and, I think of my own experience, like trying to be the parent of a disabled child and just anything in life that's heavy and difficult, you know, it's hard not to try to figure out some sort of way of relating to life and the world that doesn't have at least some element of magic or mysticism in it, like an open, like an openness to there being levels of consciousness, for example, that we simply don't have uh, awareness of in our day-to-day reality, but that are there nonetheless. The belief that there might be a spirit realm. Um, like, who fucking knows? Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I can't prove it, but there definitely is a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence that people have experiences they can't explain. Are all of them full of shit? <laughs> I mean, is everybody lying? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'm, uh-huh. uh, I'm open. Like I'm, I'm a skeptic, but I'm open. And I think maybe the word that I land on 
at the end of it all is just humility. Like we really don't know very much, uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, about what this is or where we even are. And, um, you know, I think having some degree of wonder in your fundamental worldview and approach to life is proportionate, right? I don't know. Wonder is a great word for, I mean, I think I, I spent like, um, a year just like rereading the books that I loved as a child, uh, because I, I mean, this is going to sound off track, but it's totally trying to answer this. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I, I don't know if you have this experience, but I think it's pretty common, but like, I, I hardly felt as if I was reading the book, you know, like if it really felt as if I was living within it and like, I could see the book, you know, like I, I could literally see it. Um, the images in the book, uh, my parents used to like get really upset that I wasn't answering their like demands while I was reading a book and I, I like literally had not heard it. You know, I had not heard anything. Um, and that experience of reading has kind of gone away from me now. And I, I, I don't like see it visually as much and I don't kind of have that total immersion in it. Um, and I wanted to see like whether or not I could, whether it was like the books or me. Um, and so I read for a year, just like all of these um, middle grade YA books that I, I loved as kids and as a kid and I actually was really able to recapture a lot of it and I, I really wanted to know like what what that was and like what what's going like what's going away in the transition from those books to the books that I read and love as an adult um you know that are like adult fiction or whatever um and I I, I think a lot of it is wonder I think like there's there's so much more wonder in those kids books than there is um in an adult even like really amazing adult books like the so much of the the kids literature is the the wonder is externalized right um i think that's part of it too that there's still wonder in some ways in, in adult literary fiction but like for the kids books so much of that wonder is is in the world right um, and it, you know, maybe just cause like the experience of being a kid, right. It's just like, you have so much wonder and the world seems so mysterious and it is mysterious, but maybe we like sacrificed that mystery in some way to self-awareness. Um, I'm actually writing a book right now or working on a book called the sense of wonder that came out of trying to like, I was like, I, I want to write a book with some wonder in it, hmm. um, for adults. Um, and in the time I could think of that where I felt the most wonder as an adult in real life was when, um, was when Jeremy Lin was, was going off. Um, and in, and in K dramas. <laughs> so like the book is about like Jeremy Lin and K dramas, but <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy Lin being the NBA, the Asian NBA basketball. Yes. Star. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, they, I, I had this conversation with somebody a little while ago where we were saying like, that's the best time I, that's the, the best I've ever felt about America um, was during Linsanity, during that like week and a half of Jeremy Lin winning games and going like mad on the court. Um, that was the best I've ever felt about America. Um, it just seems like a like so much more was possible than was possible right before that. Um, and that's kind of wonder, right? Um, 
And I get that same feeling sometimes from K-dramas. And so I kind of just, you know, it was also really just an excuse to write about things that I like to write about as we go back to our earlier conversation, right? Just the things that I like, basketball and um, K-drama. What is K, for people listening who might not know, what is K-drama? So K-drama are Korean dramas, uh, which are basically like miniseries. Like if you think of like those HBO miniseries. So they're like often 16 or 20 episode long um, shows that have a beginning, middle and end. It's all kind of planned out. I actually think they're super, maybe the most close visual form to a novel. The episodes are all like an hour long and they and they have and they go somewhere like instead of the kind of the way that you have to leave so many things open because you don't know when the show will end um in american tv that's all part of a like a in, in k-dramas it's all directed right and so like just like a novel they know where they're going and the show everything in the show means something to the larger kind of project um and has a kind of central through line and follows like a very similar structure to a, uh, to the novel, um, or at least a kind of like a traditional novel, mm-hmm. traditional in like a Western um, psychological realism sense. Um, and so, oh, I don't know. Was I, I was just explaining what a K drama is, right? Well, where do you, <laughs> I just love them so much. They're where amazing. do you watch them? Uh, Netflix mainly now. Netflix is now like basically bought a cable. That, I don't know what they did, but they. All of the K-dramas on a certain cable network in Korea are now on Netflix. And Netflix finances these dramas. Um, and so they're, like, really amazingly produced. And, um, you know, they hire really great actors and um, writers and stuff. But I also watch the ones on different, you know, different channels on a program called Viki, um, which is crowdsourced subtitles from people all over the world so you can like you know get subtitles in all these different languages that people have just done themselves which is um feels like nice in a way uh but sometimes the translations are not as good as say on on netflix but i spend a lot of time i basically only watch k-drama now on tv because it feels like because of that sense of wonder and because it feels like i'm also doing something that's helpful for my writing um for writing novels so i i kind of have made myself like an exclusive k-drama tv watcher now i get that you got i mean you got to pick and choose right you only have so much netflix time you might as well be something yeah, that, yeah. like it like like what better way to assuage the guilt of sitting around watching netflix as a you know we're supposed to be ultra productive right at all times and now you can feel like you're being productive while you watch netflix <laughs> it's true you have to kind of like <laughs> it's ideal to to design a project around research and something that's not really research, right? Like if I'm writing a book, a novel about K-drama, then I can just watch K-dramas as research, right? Like there, there's a, a nice way in which you can set yourself the parameters that allow you to do what is not actually productive in a productive way. Um, it's, it's the best. I mean, I think, we can do more to like help our mental health sometimes. Hmm. Well, I, you know, I just want to say you got, you and your family have been in my thoughts, um, you know, over the past couple of years, two, three years. And 
uh, I know I, I'm far from alone. There are a lot of people in the literary community, including lots of people you don't even know and have never met before, who have been thinking about you and wishing you well. And I'm really excited uh, for you with this new book. I'm excited about the one about wonder. I feel kind of proud of myself for even bringing up that term, considering that's like, <laughs> that, it feels sort of like kismet, right? But um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just pulling for you. And I'm sort of in awe of your um, resilience and your um, ability to keep going and to keep doing good work, despite all that you've had to cope with. And I just want you to know that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wishing you well on behalf of a lot of us. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone too, who's listening and um, who has in any way thought about my family and uh, or, and or contributed to um, our survival, uh, which is a lot of people, you're right, I think. It's really been amazing to me to see um, people out there make these connections through the written word, right? Well, Matt, I appreciate the time. I'll let you go find out what your kids are up to. Um, and I just wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Brad. This has been great. I you know, wish we could have this conversation each week. All right, that's Matthew Salasis. His new novel is called Disappear Doppelganger Disappear, available now from Little A Publishing. You can track him down on the internet at matthewsalesis.com, and you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Salesis. The novel, once again, is called Disappear Doppelganger Disappear, available now from Little A Publishing. Go get your copy immediately. Buy two of them and uh, give one away. What do you think of that? The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, 670 episodes and counting, all of it is offered to you freely it's a listener supported show if you like the show and you listen regularly and you have the means throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you want to write to me if you have something to say the email address is letters at other if you want to uh, participate in our fun little interactive game the uh, hashtag where i listen where, you know, listeners send in photos of where they listen. You could send a selfie and a picture of where you are when you listen, or you could just send a photo of where, you know, the setting that you're in. We want to see where you listen. Where are you right now in space? Where are you right now? Where do you listen? You can DM a photo at uh, the show's social media feeds on Twitter at OtherPPL or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. You can also email me your, your uh, pick or pics. Uh, you know, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. It's fun. Go to the show's Instagram feed and check out all the uh, Where I Listen photos. It's interesting to see where people are, you know? Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. It's free. Everything's free. Go get the app wherever you get apps. It's a good app. I'm falling behind. I don't know who's up next. I wish I could tell you. It's going to have to be a mystery. This heat wave, these fires, this live blog that I'm doing. Oh yeah, don't forget about that. Bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. <laughs>